A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored in honor of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the HaKaras HaTayv, we have for the abundant brachas in our lives, and it's dedicated by Joel and Ilana Katz. That's got to be one of the best uh, dedications I've had here, and dedicated in honor of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. What better? What better can we get than that? Um, so I just um, before we get to the Chazanish part two, it's a very exciting continuation from our part one of the Chazanish. I just wanted to mention with the whole tragic situation going on in Afghanistan now, and it's in the news and all that, so I just did released a, a, a short, uh, brief overview of, of Afghanistan uh, Jewish history in a short little cute video of, on uh, on Jewish History Soundbites uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can go check it out and, and uh, just get a little bit of a picture of that. There's all these comparisons to, to Saigon, to Vietnam, and Actually, it reminded me of, of a scene from from a, a movie, uh, the Battle of Stalingrad, the last Luftwaffe um, airplanes leaving uh, leaving the airfield there as the Russians were closing in, people grabbing onto wings and stuff, whatever. But I just thought about giving a a, um, a Jewish uh, historical perspective on Afghanistan. So that's that. So we get to the Khazanish. We had a part one way back. Um, and uh, it's time to get to part two, to get more of the Chazanish's life. We're not going to finish it now with part two either, because the Chazanish, Rav Ram Yeshaya Karelitz, he had such a fascinating life and so much going on in Jewish history during his lifetime that we're definitely going to have to have a part three uh, about it, him as well. So we'll have to get back to that. So if you want to sponsor that, then please be in touch with me. And I also want to take this opportunity to wish a Mazel Tov to legendary Jewish History Soundbites listener and contributor with his vast knowledge, Eli Neuberger, on the Bar Mitzvah, uh, the occasion of the Bar Mitzvah of his son, Simchazissel, who is also, I understand, is, is also the Bar Mitzvah boy, is also a dedicated and knowledgeable listener of Jewish History Soundbites as well. By the way, speaking of Bar Mitzvahs and, and the relation to Jewish history, just a humorous uh, uh, tidbit. I once heard uh, um, 
Professor Marcin Wajinski, a great uh, scholar, Polish scholar of Hasidism. So he once told me that he thinks that the ideal bar mitzvah gift should be his book, The Atlas of Hasidism. So that's uh, just in case you're going to a bar mitzvah one of these days, you want a suggestion for what a good bar mitzvah gift. Either way, let's really get back to the Chazanish this time. In part one, I discussed his family background and his education in Kosovo, where he grew up, and an overview of the impact that he had and all kinds of health issues that he suffered and were challenges throughout his life, his personality, his engagement in marriage, and the tragedy of his married life. Um, also, and then I spoke about his years in Chvedan, and then his uh, exile in World War One in Stoipz in Minsk. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned in part one, but in in Stoipz, he actually, for the one and only time during his uh, lifetime, he served for a short time, uh, really a short unofficial stint in the rabbinate uh, because of the conditions of World War One and and all that, and uh, so he, he, if you want to know, the the only time he ever had an official position in his entire life, it was that short little stint in the rabbinate in Stoipz, I think it was even unofficial, it wasn't really an official position, uh, during World War I. So the goals that we're going to try to get in uh, part two here, if we can, is his years in Vilna, following uh, World War I, he spent 13 years in Vilna, and the trips to Vilna, I try to show the groups the his house in Vilna, and everyone rushes to take pictures, and what a holy spot, it's his house in Vilna. So I told, always tell them, you know, his house in Bnei Brak, which none of you ever visited or have taken pictures of, is um, he lived there longer than uh, than he did in Vilna, so that would seem to be bigger, but it's in Vilna, it's more exciting, so that definitely is uh, legitimate. So we'll try to cover his Vilna years, and then his moving to Eretz Yisrael, to Palestine in 1933, where he remained from his, the rest of his life, and we'll try to cover the early years in um, in Palestine, if we have time for that as well. And then uh, in part three, we'll talk about his later years and and when he really reached uh, his he made, you know his primary leadership position in the Jewish world, the Torah world, the rebuilding of the Torah world, and the early years of the state of Israel. I want to clarify one mistake I made on the part one of the Chazanish. It was it was in and it was during an, in the I think it was like a year ago. It was a long time ago. Um, it was near his yard site. I think that's why I put out part one. It was during election season. I mentioned the elections at the outset of of the episode, and I made it sound as if the Chazanish's position was clear cut that he you know he you know. That was strongly supported voting in the elections for uh, participating in the elections and, and, and voting. Uh, it's not clear cut at all. Um, I had misunderstood it or misspoke. I don't know what it was. Then it was a year ago. It's hard to remember. Um, but it was, he, he was very clear cut about municipal elections, municipality, municipal, municipal, municipality, the area. The Hebrew word is easier. Uh, the the, uh, the city elections that he was clear cut. He said definitely he was very supportive of of participating in those. Apparently about national elections, there's a dispute about what his real position was until today. No one has actually resolved it. So there you go. There's different versions of what he said and what he believed, and different students of his go in different ways. So um, so just that's uh, to clarify. 
Um, it happens to be one of the interesting features of the Chazanish's life is that uh, I've noticed that basically every single episode and anecdote of his entire life, there's several versions of each story. And that seems to be quite unique to the Chazanish, that there's nothing about his life that everyone agrees upon, and there's always different versions of it. And there's actually so many sources, memoirs, biographies. Um, there's so many great books about him, mostly in Hebrew. I think some of them have been translated into English. And then, of course, you have uh, Professor Benny Brown's uh, amazing work on him. It's close to a thousand pages long. Um, about 60, 70 pages are a biography of his. Another 200-something 300-something pages are about his his leadership and the uh, positions that he took on public policy and activism. And then about 600 pages about his analysis of his halachic positions on various views and 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 how he approached halachic psak in general. So, um, you know, if you want... Which, which I guess, I guess does justice because the Chazanish... Uh, more than anything else, was a a Pisic, was uh, was a was a halachic uh, Tyra. You know, he he spent his his life studying Tyra and then publishing his works. And his legacy till today is the many, 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 many svarim he has. I think close to forty or maybe more than forty svarim that's been published of the Tyra of the Chazanish in various formats, mainly by his brother-in-law Shmuel Greinerman. And then by his uh, and then by the Greinerman family, or Chazanish, of course, did not have children of his own. So the um, the legacy is the written legacy uh, and the halachic legacy of the Chazanish. That's the primary legacy. But I'm going to focus more on his life and and action. So he moves to Vilna, and um, and he's still hidden. I spoke about in part one how he's very hidden. He's, he remains. Vilna still is in the hidden stage. He's not very well known. But he starts to kind of break out. He's, you know, he's in Vilna. He's not in Little Shtetl anymore. He's in the center of the rabbinic world, um, near Chaim Eiser, near many of his family members. A bunch of Karelitzes lived in Vilna at the time. They resided there, and um, so he's he slowly makes his first steps into the public view. Not really public, but we'll say less private than than it was until now. And it comes in several stages. And Chaim Eiser becomes a very big promoter of who the Chazanish is and 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 the prestige that uh, that he should and does and he should deserve um, and that becomes a major factor in him slowly uh, becoming more of a public figure and he definitely does not really become a public figure until he moves um, to Eretzisrael until he moves to the Holy Land in 1933 but gradually during his Vilna years he does take some behind-the-scenes stances on public policy, mainly, uh, primarily in tandem with Reb Chaim Meiser and other uh, family members of his own, of, of, of the Chazanish himself. So in, in post-World War One, the situation with his wife becomes more problematic. She has a, you know, more of a, a downturn. Like I mentioned in part one, she was much older than him, and, and she definitely uh, suffered from, uh, you know, uh, some issues in her personality and mental issues. It seems that she was not a healthy woman when it only deteriorated throughout uh, her life. Um, and uh, he also wanted to have children and was already married for close to 20 years at this point. He did not have children. So at one point, while they were living in Vilna, he uh, he attempted to, to uh, reason with her that... Uh, 
to be able to get divorced and maybe can marry someone else and perhaps have children. She did not uh, seem excited about the idea, and um, they remained married. Um, but it was, you know, there was a lot of strain in the relationship uh, as well. But he was building new relationships in in uh, in, in Vilna, mainly with you know, with Reb Chaim Eisner, Reb Chaim Eisner Grzynski, the uh, you know great leader of the Jewish people um, for many years, and especially during the interwar period. He, in fact, the only foray into the into public actis, act, activism, albeit behind the scenes, that the Chazanish uh, played in, in in during his Vilna years was the rabbinate of Vilna controversy, which I discussed in another episode, that um, the controversy that uh, that took place in the ni- late 1920s um, for Chaim Oizer to take the chief rabbinate of Vilna, or it's like Rubinstein, and the Chazanish, of course, uh, took the side of Chaim Oizer, and he was involved in that uh, dispute as well. Uh, Chaim Oizer said himself, and he wrote this in letters, this is something documented completely, that Chaim Oizer said that he would ask the advice of Rav Romishai Karelitz, the Chazanish, who was still an unknown at the time, on many, many issues. Not only halachic issues, which he would do all the time, but even on public policy issues, which is an incredible uh, statement. The Chazanish uh, was still young, uh, on the younger side, he's already in his 40s, 50s even, um, but comparatively to Rav Chaim Eiser, who was the senior uh, elderly leader at this point with so many years of experience in the public sphere, and he writes he writes at least at least two or three times in different letters about how he would himself uh, seek the advice of the Chazanish on many issues. Um, at one point, when Reb Chaim Zanufeld, the, the head of the Eid Haredes and the Agudas Yisrael in the land of Israel, was getting elderly and sick, so Reb Meisha Bloy, the head of uh, the Agudas Yisrael in in uh, Israel and Palestine at the time, um, came to Europe to seek out a, a uh, assistant and and you know presumably the successor uh, uh, of uh, the implied successor of Reb Chaim Zanavel. So Ramesha Bloy, there was internal tension within the Eidah Haredes at this time um, about what direction the Agudas Yisrael slash Eidah Haredes they were together still. They were to be separated a, a few years later, but at this time, in the early 1930s, they were still together, which is an interesting story also. Hopefully we'll get to one day. Um, so the the the, uh, the uh, Ramesh Abloy thought that it would be best to keep it, to keep stability would be to keep it, to, to you know, temper down the uh, extremism within the, 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 uh, the emerging extremism within the Eidah Haredes. And in order to do so, he felt that the, he, he preferred that the one who would stand at its helm of the Besdin would be a Lithuanian Torah scholar or alternatively a Polish Torah scholar, but not a Hungarian. He felt that if it would be a Hungarian, then the, then the, uh, then the um, extremists within the Eidah Haredes would claim victory and, 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 uh, and lead it down that way, which is exactly what happened. But um, so he, but he, he want, initially wanted to get a Lithuanian or Polish uh, leader. So he came to Vilna, he came to Poland, he came to Lithuania, he came to, to, to check out different candidates, and he wanted to, and he asked Reb Chaim Eisner, he sought out his advice, uh, who should be the next uh, head of the Eidah Haredes. And the Chazanish's name came up, 
and the Ramesh Bloody got excited, but the Chazanish turned it down, as he always did throughout his life. He did not want any official rabbinical position. He did not want to be on a Besden that decides uh, financial disputes. He, he he was not interested in the job. Eventually, the one who got the job was Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Dushinsky. Um, so, so he continues, the, the Chazanish continues to reside in Vilna, and at this time he has a, a, one of the most fascinating relationships that... Uh, that the Chazanish develops at this time, is that he starts to have his first students. His first students who he studies with, usually one-on-one, are young young um, teenage or in their 20s, young uh, yeshiva students, basically. And usually the ones who he brought close to him and studied with were on the fringe, I guess, at risk. I guess the, uh, the Chazanish was somewhat of a Kirov pioneer, uh, I guess, if you want to call it that way. Um, and he studied with several of these youth, um, and he tried to influence them and have an impact on their on their Torah study and religious life. And one of the most fascinating ones that he had with, I've mentioned in other episodes, is with Chaim Grada, who later became the famous Yiddish writer as part of the Jung Vilna. And then he moved to New York, and, and he was um, one of the greatest Yiddish writers of the 20th century. And Chaim Grada, in his semi-autobiographical work, Tzemach uh, Atlas, or the Yeshiva, and then later Milchemes HaYetzer, um, he describes the figure of the Chazanesh. He's one of the main characters in the book. He calls him the Machaz Avram. He calls him Avram Shaya, not Yeshaya, Avram Shaya, Kosover. Chazanesh was from Kosov. And um, you know, in, the, in theory, this is a, a, a novel. It's not, not not exactly a factual book, but it's obviously based on the Chazanish's character, and it's a semi-autobiographical uh, work. And um, and it's a, a fascinating read in general about Novardic and a, you know the critique on the Novardic system. And it also expresses there the Chazanish's opposition to the Muslim movement, especially of the Novardic stream which is someone, something that uh, is less well-known today about the Chazanish's opposition to the Muslim movement. It's something that's uh, somewhat suppressed. And I'm always uh, amazed when you occasionally bump into someone at a Musr Seder in a yeshiva studying the Chazanish's uh, work, Sefer Emuna Ubitachen, which is a, uh, it was published posthumously by his brother-in-law, Shmuel Gardeman, but a short, a slim little work which uh, at least half of the Sefer is directly uh, a polemics with the Musser movement and against it. And now to anyone who would go ahead and say that the Chazanish was anti-Musser, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. I don't think as far, and I've researched this quite some time, I don't think there's anyone, any you know, religious uh, rabbi who was ever opposed to the study of Musser in general. I don't think it exists. Uh, I don't think it ever happened. Any opposition was the Musser movement, or as the educational tool, or the 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 way it's used, or the way it's implemented in, in the yeshiva. That might have been the opposition whenever there was. I don't think there ever was someone who actually was opposed to the study of Musser, as far as I know. So, in fact, the Chazanish himself was misunderstood once in this regard, and he wrote a very sharp letter to someone who would later become the Chevron Rosh Hashiva, Rabsim Chazisel Broida. And um, 
He wrote to him, he said, uh, you, you misunderstood me, and now people are spreading rumors about me that, I, that I'm against Musser, that's not what I am, I'm, and I have my critique on the Musser movement, and I knew the altar of Slobodka, and I, I knew Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, and he, in fact he calls Rabbi Rucham in that letter, he says, Hasaba me Slobodka, in other words, the altar of Slobodka, Hasaba me Mir, and the altar of Mir, which is the, I've never ever seen Rabbi Rucham referred to as the altar of Mir, but that's how the Chazanish uh, re- refers to him. Either way, so he, he he's upset at Reb Simcha Zizel, who was then a young man, um, a young student at the Lamji Yeshiva in Petach Tikva, and he says to him, "Why, why? Not, 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 I'm sorry, not the Lamji. There was another Yeshiva in Petach Tikva. What was it called again? Some other place in Petach Tikva. This not important now. Uh, the um, so so he says to him, you're, you know, you misunderstood." My, I, have, I have my critique on the movement, but I'm not, a, you know, against Musser, and and uh, you have to understand it correctly, and don't misquote me, and blah 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 blah, blah so on, yada yada. yada. So, but he, but in, but he had his critique, and he, uh, um, he had his issues with it. He, he, he believed that there's two ways to grow as a Jew, and he, he expresses it in Emunah B'Tachan. He expresses it in 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 his letters, which are published in the Kovitz Igris, and then, of course, you have Chaim Grada's uh, version in his books. In other words, there's many sources, mainly from the Chazanish himself, uh, about what his opposition was, and he believed that there's two ways for a Jew to grow as a Jew closer to God. There's the total immersion in the in the study of Torah, and the second way is the, which is complementary to the first way, is the complete and intense and total dedication to the observance of halacha and the mitzvahs. And uh, he felt that you know, Musser, as a, as a study, as a methodology, as a, as a philosophy of, of getting closer, of improving, of becoming a better Jew, is superfluous. It detracts from the study of Torah, and, it, uh, and he says some of them have strange customs, and he's clearly referring very often to what he observed first in Minsk and then later in the land of Israel, up to the uh, some of the uh, Navardic uh, extremism, but he also has critique on Slobodka and Kelm, and uh, and it, it's very interesting uh, about how he uh, how he he goes on about that, which in retrospect it might be related to. I had recently had a a a a, 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 a an episode about the Musser movement, um, and I you know left off with a question about you know what what. The rehabilitation or lack thereof of the Muslim movement in post-war in Israel, a partial answer might be because one of the architects of of the rebuilding of Torah life in Israel after the war was the Chazanish, and if he was opposed to the Muslim movement, then uh, definitely would be inhibit inhibit its uh, success and its resurgence. Either way, he in his time in Vilna he publishes his works, uh, which already before he started publishing it even earlier, even before World War I, um, he publishes them all anonymously. Uh, he, he Four volumes get published in Europe, another 20 or so in, in Palestine. By now, uh, many years later, I think there's over 40 uh, that have been published of Israel. Shmuel Greinemann dealt with the entire editing and publishing from start to finish. The Chazanish was never involved at all, even in the slightest. Um, and uh, his other young students included a, a relative of his, Shlomo Cohen, who um, who was a, a related to his his brother of Mary Karelz, or Mary Karelz was married to the daughter of the Cheshik Shlomer of Shlomo Cohen, who this young man was namesake, a grandson, a namesake of 
Um, so he, and the, the Shlomo Cohen actually did come closer to Yiddishkeit uh, as a due, due to the Chazanish's influence, and he later becomes the editor and biographer of the Chazanish in, in a like a seven six or seven volume uh, work Pe'er Hadar, which brings a lot of testimonies, a very important work about the Chazanish that was under the uh, auspices of this Shlomo Cohen. So. Why did he? Why did Chazanish take in these young students? So first of all, he, by now he realized that he would not be having children, and this way he can impact the youth uh, by studying with uh, with the chosen selected uh, youth. <coughs> excuse me, studying Torah with them. Um, he also uh, felt that uh, you know he had his critique on the yeshiva system, the, their style of learning, or Chaim Brisker and the whole yeshiva way of studying Torah. He had his very independent in his derech halimud in the way he learned. So he felt that the younger his chavrusa would be, the less, uh, the less the, the, the adverse influence of the mainstream way of what is studying would already have been uh, would already have been inculcated into the young student, uh, and therefore the chazanish could have an impact on the future direction of the way these young uh, young chavrusas would have in their learning. So he wanted to take the younger the better. This way, they're, they're, before they got the full full education. In the uh, in the mainstream way, uh, Chaim Grad actually lived in his home. They studied together for seven years. And Chaim Grad lived in the Chazanish's home. Uh, Chazanish at this time published articles in the in the journal, which is edited by his brother Rameir Karelitz, called Knesses Yisrael, um, and uh, and he wrote under var- var- various pseudonyms. At one point, he wrote a critique of a Torah article which had been authored earlier in the pages of this journal by Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who was then a young uh, student at the University of Berlin. So here there are two versions of this story. It's a fascinating story. A, a, not a really a direct interaction, but a, uh, a through on the pages of Knesset Yisrael, there's this interaction with the future Rav Soloveitchik. Um, so one version is, is that really was not the Torah chidushim of Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, the son, but rather it was of his father, Rav Meishas Soloveitchik. And the Chazanish, the reason he wanted to criticize it is because Ramesha Soloveitchik belonged to Mizrahi, to religious Zionism. So he wanted to criticize That's one version of the story. The other version of the story is that it really was Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik's Tyra. And the Chazanish wanted to criticize it to show that a student in university, his Torah is not, you know, top quality, and he, he can, uh, you know, he can show that it's not. Uh, there was answers. Rav Soloveitchik wrote, subsequently submitted answers, which have been published. So, you know, you can pick whatever version of that story you want. But that's an anecdote that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would appreciate. As far as his, once we spoke about his relationship with Mizrahi and religious Zionism, so as far as his relationship with Mizrahi and religious Zionism in general is concerned, he definitely had a bad taste for it following the Rabbinate and Vilna controversy because it was the Mizrahi which promoted the candidacy of Rubitzlik Rubinstein against Rukhaim Weiser. But much more so, after following his arrival in the Holy Land, and he noticed that, which in his opinion, there were halacha compromises utilized by uh, by the some of the farming settlements of religious Zionism, such as the heter mechira of Shemitah, such as milking cows on Shabbos, which were big issues in the new developing farming settlements in the Yishuv at the time of his arrival in the 1930s, which is fascinating because... It was not political. It was halacha, which is typical of the Chazanish. The Chazanish was a complete and total halachasist, however you would say that. 
That was the only thing that concerned him throughout his life. He was not very political at all. He was never closely associated with the Agudis Yisrael. He never wanted to be officially associated with it. By him, the only criteria to judge a person was his observance of Allah and his dedication to observing every precept of Allah. And, it's, uh, and that's pretty consistent throughout his career. And we can bring many, many examples of it, which I'm not going to get into now. Um, and then he decides to move to the land of Israel. This is something that he had wanted to do from the 1920s already, and he had to push it off for all kinds of economic reasons. His wife didn't want to go, and the store was successful, and he didn't know if he would have a job. He or she would be able to you know, sustain themselves financially in the Holy Land. They're finally able to make it in 1933. I heard once a myth about him. Um, I couldn't find this written anywhere this time. I, I didn't obviously look enough, but um, I, heard, I remember either reading or hearing once a myth about him uh, um, pushing off his moving to the land of Israel because the Chavetz Chaim uh, told him not to go yet, or something something along those lines. So he waited till after the Chavetz Chaim's passing in order to go. In other words, for some reason it's you're permitted to not listen to the Chavetz Chaim after his passing, according to that myth. But whatever it is, either way, the story never happened. And the simple reason being is that he moved to the land of Israel before the Chavetz Chaim passed away. He moved in the summer of... Uh, of 1933, and the Chavetz Chaim passed away in uh, a couple of months later, two or three months later. Um, so he was able to get uh, a certificate through the Reb Chaim Meiser, helped in the Agudas Yisrael in, 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 in Israel, you know, pulled some strings, and he was able to get a certificate from the British, and he moved. Um, the first letter he wrote upon arrival was actually to Rav Cook, the chief rabbi. Because he wanted, and of course, it was about a halacha question, and he he wanted to know something about Meiser Sheni, about redeeming Meiser Sheni. Um, later on, the Chazanish would take a more critical view of uh, Rav Cook and his uh, his positions. But at this time, he was very very respectful of him. He referred to him very respectfully in the letter, and uh, and inquired about Pidyon Meiser Sheni. In fact, uh, the Chazanish was the one who wanted to be lenient in this regard, and Rav Cook took a more stringent tri- stringent position, which is uh, also interesting. So they only met actually face-to-face one and only time, um, which is fa- also interesting. And because because they met once, so it also has gone down in history as the stuff of legend and almost as famous as the Chazanish's meeting with David Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister of Israel, many, many years later. Um, so this took place shortly after the Chazanish's arrival at the cornerstone laying ceremony for the Navardic Yeshiva in Bnei Brak of Ramatisio Shtitzkal. And Rav Cook was the guest of honor, and Rav Cook spoke, and the Chazanish stood respectfully throughout the whole speech, and they met either right before or after, and they had a, a cordial, uh, friendly conversation. Rav Cook actually was involved in financially assisting the Chazanish uh, upon his arrival. Rav Chaim Oizer was very concerned about, uh, about uh, Rav, uh, the precarious situation of the Chazanish's uh, finances, and he corresponded with many people in that regard, and one of the people who he corresponded with was Rav Cook. Uh, the Chazanish's wife did not succeed in rebuilding her fabric business in Palestine, so there was no income. Um, the Chazanish refused to take any rabbinical position. He refused to take any position in a yeshiva. He did give shiurim occasionally in the Navardic branch in Bnei Brak uh, until the stipler, until his brother-in-law, the stipler, arrived, who was you know, a Navardic uh, rebbe in, in Pinsk. So he became the Navardic rebbe in, in Bnei Brak. But, uh, so then he stopped. But um, but that was the only time. Again, again, it was also unofficial. 
but um, he also the Chazanish also refused to accept charity. He didn't want to take any any uh, you know live off other people. So the uh, the uh, there was Rebbechazer had another attempt to have Rebbechatzkel Abramsky was by then in London to find someone in England to to support the Chazanish, but that didn't really work out. The Chazanish didn't want to take that support, so the Chazanish survived by selling his farm, which is another reason why he published so many once he moved to uh, Palestine. That was his entire income, which was very meager. So Rav Cook tried to help him out with that. He tried to have more sold. He wrote to Reb Chaim Eiser that he himself bought a set of, of Chazanish, and he encouraged others to do so as well. And, uh, and Rav Kook also tried to intercede with Kailal Vilna. Also, Chaim Eiser did that also in the old Yisha, that maybe they should try to send support to uh, Rav Chaim Eiser. But, um, that, you know, that, that also um, had limited uh, effect. As it happens, the Chazanish did not settle in the old Yishuv, and he did not want to settle in the old Yishuv. He did not, uh, he looked at, a bit with a, askance at the whole old Yishuv situation. He had first settled in Tel Aviv, the first few weeks that he lived in uh, in Palestine. Uh, interesting story that I heard uh, orally from a member of the Greinemann family, I never saw this uh, published anywhere, was that... Um, but it could be it is. I, again, there's so much written about the Chazanish, I definitely have not seen anything close to everything. Um, so that he he sat down to study in what was then one of the only yeshivas in in uh, Tel Aviv at the time, Heichal HaTalmud, which was a branch of Slabatka, and uh, a break you know, after the Hebron Massacre. So senior students of the Altar Slabatka founded it in, in Tel Aviv. So, you know, the Chazanish always learned his own thing. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't part of any official curriculum. So he was approached by one of the heads of Heichel Talmud. I don't know which one, there are a few. And he saw this stranger who had just showed up in the base Medrash, and he said, if you would like to be part of the yeshiva, Heichel Talmud, then we request that you study the Masechta that the yeshiva is studying currently, and not do your own thing. And the Chazanish, of course, was not interested in, in, in being part of any official curriculum. He did everything on his own. He was not, uh, so he said, no, thank you, and I guess I'll leave. So he found another base medrash to study in in Tel Aviv. So um, little did this uh, head of Heichel Atabin know, but he had just thrown the Chazanish out of his yeshiva. And obviously, he didn't know who he was, and he was not well known at the time uh, altogether. But uh, he had the distinction of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, expelling the Chazanish from, from a yeshiva. Uh, which is an interesting distinction to have. So a few weeks later, he settles in Bnei Brak, uh, which is also part of the new Yishuv. It was a very new settlement founded by Polish Hasidim from the Warsaw area several years before. He did not want to settle in Yerushalayim. He did not want to settle in Tel Aviv or Petach Tikva or any other place in this brand new Yishuv. Today, it's written in many sources that the reason he chose Bnei Brak is because he wanted a place of Torah. But uh, that's that's anachronistic because the reason that Bnei Brak is a place of Torah today is largely due to the Chazanish's influence. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? So it was not a place of Torah when the Chazanish arrived. It was nothing. It was a small yeshiv with uh, Polish uh, Hasidim businessmen, um, religious. It was a religious yeshiv, but it was not a, a place of Torah. The Navardic yeshiva had just been opened. That was the first yeshiva in Bnei Brak, and it was just been opened recently before that. Um, so there is... Uh, so, um, so, but he he wants to be in a new place. Um, he he uh, he had an interesting uh, relationship. He became almost a fatherly figure to the the uh, farming settlements of the Pele Agudas Yisrael, the kibbutzim of Pele Agudas Yisrael, helping them with their halachic issues, uh, shmita, milking on Shabbos, and and guiding them in that regard, campaigning for the mitzvahs which are pertinent to the land of Israel. And then he goes ahead and starts to build Bnei Brak itself. He was involved in the building of the Erev, 
the Shechita in Bnei Brak, built the, one, of the, one of the early yeshivas for younger students of Bnei Brak, probably the earliest yeshiva for younger students of Bnei Brak, called Tiferes Tzion, which I've read so much about, and actually just a few weeks ago I had the privilege of being there for the first time. I happened to be in Bnei Brak, so I took a quick stop in to see Tiferes Tzion, the Chazanish's yeshiva, and he, he oversaw the activities of that yeshiva. He made sure that the water tower in Bnei Brak was without the desecration of Shabbos, etc. His impact changed forever on the Jewish people when he met uh, what became his patron, the Yaakov Halperin. Uh, through him, the Chazanish was able to initiate many of his projects. Uh, Yaakov Halperin was a wealth, wealthy chartkever chassid who was kind of lost following the passing of the very dynamic and charismatic chartkever Rebbe. So uh, following his first meeting with the Chazanish, he said, I found a new Rebbe. And that's how he treated him. So this Chartikov Rechassid is treating this Litvak uh, uh, scholar as a Rebbe. And together they found, founded, among many of the projects they were eventually going to do together, they founded the Zichren Meir neighborhood in Bnei Brak, which is actually named for another Chartikov Rechassid, Reb Meir Shapiro. You know, this was the first really religious neighborhood in Bnei Brak, and the first one that was closed to traffic on Shabbos, possibly the first neighborhood in the world like that. Halperin would become his right-hand man right hand man for for many years and many future projects. Another project the uh, Chazanish is involved with is the founding of the Kail Chazanish, which would eventually become called the Kail Chazanish. Obviously, it wasn't called the Kail Chazanish in its uh, early stages. In 1936, when it's founded, it's actually a Novartic Kail, um, but uh, that becomes a very significant shift to the right in, in uh, not only in the Chazanish himself and his position, but also in the impact that he would have on the larger religious community in Israel is the opening of the of the Kail and then his promotion of the idea. So this is uh, part two of the Chazanish. Part three, we'll talk about more his later years leading up to the state, the early years of the state, and then his national leadership. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.